Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. Uh, you've made yourself known um, through your word and ultimately through uh, the word made flesh, your son, our Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, as today, we pray that as we read, um, you would, um, by your spirit, um, give us uh, understanding uh, to the things we uh, consider and hear about through your word today. Uh, for Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, reading from John. Uh, the 53rd verse of chapter 7 which simply says then they all went home going on to 8.11 <clears throat> but Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus teacher this woman was caught in adultery in the law of Moses, commands her such a woman, what do you say? They were using this question to trap in order they might have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, let anyone who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this they heard and began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, and only Jesus was left. The woman was standing there. Jesus straightened up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. It is, uh, Steve sort of indicated as we've gone through, it's a bit of an unusual passage. It's a bit of a puzzle, this passage we're looking at today. Um, uh, so we're going to, we are going to dive straight, uh, straight into talking about it, but it, it's one of the most treasured stories about Jesus. Um, there's lots of people who have found this story just a really um, helpful story, and we're going to think sort of in the second part of our time here about this story and what we can bring out of it. Um, the problem is, and you can probably see in your um, Bibles, it's probably helpful to have a Bible open at this point. It didn't come up on the version we had on the screen, but you can probably see in your Bibles uh, at this passage, uh, there's a little note that says something like, um, the earliest of the manuscripts that we have of John's Gospel don't include this passage in it. The, uh, in fact, it almost certainly is not part of the original book that the Apostle John wrote. Now, uh, if you've been around Trinity uh, for a little while, you probably, I well, hope you know that we're, we're Bible people. Uh, we're less concerned with um, speaking our own words and more concerned with hearing and being confronted by and broken down by and remade by God's word to us. Uh, that's why we do things the way we do on Sundays and in our home groups. We go through books of the Bible, passage by passage. And that's why this passage that we just had read, that's why this passage um, poses a little bit of a problem. Your, uh, as I said, your, your Bible will have a little note here saying that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't include it. Um, so for about... 1,500 years before the printing press was developed, all the copies of the Bible were written out hand by hand. Uh, they are written copied and copied and copied. And all of the earliest of those copies that we have found don't have this story in it. So what do we do? 
Uh, we could skip over it, and I, I was actually thinking about doing that. You could skip uh, the story of John's Gospel actually runs smoothly without this passage. You could skip from where we left off at the end of chapter 7 all the way over to verse 12 of chapter 8, and, and it kind of runs smoothly there. Uh, but I wanted to take the chance not to do that and just to dig a little bit deeper into some of the issues that come up um, when you come up to this passage in John's Gospel. Um, uh, it's, it is a, an unusual passage and it, this is going to be a bit of an unusual sermon, so certainly not the kind of uh, a reflection or talk that we'd normally have here. Uh, but it, I think it is worth taking the time to do this because this can be actually quite an unsettling thing for some people. And what does coming across something like this do for our confidence in the Bible, in what we're reading about Jesus? It's a really important question. Um, those who kind of uh, are a bit uh, antagonistic towards Christianity and want to discredit the Bible will use things like this to say the argument usually goes, well, if there are differences here, what, how can we be sure about the rest of the Bible? I know people, I have friends who have walked away from following Jesus and one of the reasons they gave was this question. Um, so I want to do, try and do two things today and we'll see how we go. I might be trying to fit too much into one thing but we'll see. Uh, we're going to think a little bit about this question. Uh, how did the Bible come about, this Bible that we have in our hands and can we trust it? Uh, so that's, that'll be the first kind of Part And then we're going to look at this passage itself and hear what it says to us. Um, so on scripture and stones. Well, the first part on scripture and then we'll think about stones. Um, so how do we get this Bible that's in our hands? So, um, uh, the, the order of this little bit is a bit different if you're following along on the handout. We're going to think about a Jesus-centred view of scripture first. But how, how do we... How, how did we get this Bible in our hands? Uh, there are a few slides uh, and um, hopefully, friends, this is not just a, an academic thing for people who like to think about these things, but actually my, uh, my prayer is a, a, a really uh, encouraging thing to think through. Um, I pray that it, yeah, I, hope, I, I expect it will be that. How do we get this Bible? It all, the, the key thing is it all revolves around Jesus. Um, just imagine that's Jesus. <laughs> Uh, the stick figure, it all revolves around Jesus. This is crucial. Our confidence in the Bible flows out of a real person who actually lived uh, 2,000 years ago, a historic person. Uh, and Jesus himself um, came at a point in the story of the people of Israel. Uh, and uh, this is really important as well. He fully accepted the scriptures of the people of Israel. He was always through his own life walking around saying, it is written, it is written over and over and over again. He uses the Old Testament, the, what we have as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. He uses that to explain his life, to explain what he's on about, to explain what's going on, uh, what his mission is. But what's really important for what we're looking at today is what happens um, after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the, those historic events, um, Jesus, and this, uh, uh, Jesus commissions his special followers, his apostles, 
um, to be his witnesses, to take this incredible news about what he has done, to take this news to the world. Um, uh, He commissions his apostles to do that and to share it with the world, and that's uh, exactly what his apostles then do. So you've got those same apostles. Um, They give witness to Jesus across the whole world. They give witness, firstly, just through talking to people. They say, this incredible, amazing thing happened uh, through this person that I spent time with, Uh, this real person who lived and died and rose again. And it changes everything about how I see the world and how I think about myself. Um, But they also witness to Jesus in their writing. So there you go, that's all their writings. Uh, uh, that's, that's what we have actually in, the, in our New Testament, this collection of writings that's either written by the apostles or kind of written under their authority, authorised by them, given their seal of approval. So these writings from the apostles, as the actual apostles um, died, their writings became incredibly precious, increasingly, you know, well, they were treasured by Jesus' people and they get copied and copied and <laughs> copied and sent out over the whole world. Um, and the number of these copies is huge. There's something like 25,000 handwritten manuscripts have been found. That is incredibly bigger than any other ancient book. It's a massive amount of these manuscripts that we have. And this is where we get to our passage today. Across all of these manuscripts, you get variations between them, um, where, one man, where one will say one thing that doesn't quite match up with another. Uh, and that can seem troubling, and those, as I said, opposed to the Bible use this to discredit it, but as in many things, first impressions can be deceiving, and that's certainly the case here. When you look at what's going on with all these, these manuscripts, it's actually, I think, the incredible evidence of the sovereignty of God and of his grace. It's nothing short of a miracle. Uh, across all of the, the variations that you have between these copies, the vast, the huge majority are so insignificant uh, that they don't affect anything. So the vast majority, things like changes in spelling or word order, one will have Jesus Christ, another one will have Christ Jesus, Uh, one will have an N on the end of a word, one won't. Um, In fact, when you line up all of these and take out these tiny variations, scholars reckon there's only about 1% of the New Testament text that we have any doubt whatsoever about what it originally said. And of that 1%, tiny amount of the New Testaments we have, of that 1%, uh, none of that 1% changes any significance, has any significant impact on any, any Christian belief. Um, so in one place, uh, it talks about how Jesus tells his disciples that these demons can only be driven out, out by prayer. Um, and another version, if you had another version, you might have it in that says they can be driven out by prayer and fasting. We're not sure which one um, is right, but it has no impact. It, there's, there's no significant um, impact on anything significant in terms of the Christian faith. All of this, friends, is done completely openly and in the light. Um, we have some friends visiting who may be able to tell us a little bit about 
uh, uh, their work in translation. I'm sure that you have interesting, great stories to tell about all of this. But all of this has been done in the light. And wherever there's any uncertainty, you'll see it in a footnote in your English Bibles. The Bible is the most scrutinised, studied, cross-checked book in history and there's no cause of embarrassment about it whatsoever. And in fact, there are only two passages that are of any length in the whole New Testament that there's any real uncertainty about. One at the end of Mark's Gospel and our passage that we're looking at today. Okay, so friends, when you, take, when you read that... Uh, there's uncertainty about whether this passage should really be in John's Gospel. It shouldn't make you think that everything else is up for grabs. Uh, it shouldn't rock your confidence in any way. In fact, it should have the opposite effect. The remarkable miracle is that God, in his sovereign care, has so looked over this whole process, has uh, so ordered the transmission of his written word, that we can have a staggering confidence that what you have in your Bible sitting in your lap right now uh, is a true and faithful translation of the inspired witness of his apostles. The very few things that we're not certain about have absolutely no impact on anything significant. Uh, it is astonishing, actually, over such a vast number of copies that we have, and it should lead us to praise God. Um, well, what do we make of this passage? Um, uh, New Testament, one of the, uh, one, someone who writes about this, a guy called Don Carson, he's a New Testament scholar, he writes that while, while this story almost certainly wasn't part of the original of John's Gospel, there's very little reason to doubt that it actually happened. That is, it was a real historical story. Real, this story about Jesus really happened. And if you think about it, You'd expect that, right? At the end of John's Gospel, John writes, there were so many things that Jesus did uh, that you couldn't write, and the whole world wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to fill the books that would be written about him. So you'd expect other stories, and, th and this is one of them. John, uh, uh, yeah, uh, so that, that's, that's how I'm going to treat this passage this morning. It's a true, as a true story from Jesus' life that was passed down and ended up landing in John's Gospel here. Um, now because of what I've just said, as the, the kind of uh, uh, the uncertainty about, uh, around it, I would be really cautious if this passage told us anything new about Jesus or anything that might sort of contradict anything else, but it doesn't. Uh, the story itself is, is this beautiful illustration of things that are all through the New Testament. And we're going to use it today as a chance to be reminded and built up by those truths. Um, so, the first part of John 8. It is a, it's a story about uh, judgmentalism, actually, and hypocrisy. Um, as a, 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 an evangelist called Rico Tice, he tells the story about his dad, uh, who really struggled to accept when he became a Christian, and even more when he um, said he wanted to give his life uh, to um, telling people about Jesus and um, to this good news, to serving Jesus. Um, 
he really struggled. And the, and the reason Rico tells this story, the reason he, he struggled was that uh, his dad struggled was that he, he said he went on business trips with men. Um, they'd go away on these business trips. Uh, and he went on business trips with them who went from the, from the brothel to the mass. He said, I didn't go to the brothel and I didn't go to church either. Uh, there's just one story of this kind of hypocrisy that can so easily creep in. Uh, it's just one story, but it can be told a thousand different ways. The Christian who speaks strongly against the deterioration of family values, uh, but then is addicted to pornography or is letting an unhealthy and secretive relationship develop. The, the person who presents as calm and in control in public, but you don't want to be around them when something sets them off. Uh, the one who sings loudly and prays fervently, but then goes on without a thought to engage in slander and gossip. All kinds of wickedness <laughs> that it can be too easy to mask over. And friends, the main problem with hypocrisy isn't just that we do wrong things. That's a given, right? Uh, we're sinful, fallen people and we do that. That's a given. The main problem with hypocrisy is it stops us from seeing them, from seeing our sin and from repenting of it. Um, the word comes from a word that literally means to put on a mask. We mask over our sin, we minimise it. And that means not only do we not acknowledge and see and repent of our own sin, it means we get the opportunity to become judgmental to other people and their sin because we've masked over our own. And that is precisely what you see in this story. Uh, and you see that all through. So at the start of the story, Jesus has a crowd around him. People are getting up early at the crack of dawn uh, to hear him. That's interesting, isn't it? All these people gather around him. They get right up early. They know there's something different about Jesus. Um, they're getting up to hear him. But then he's interrupted in verse 3 by these Jewish leaders, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They bring in this woman caught in adultery. Uh, uh, she's been caught. There's no way about it. There's no, uh, she's guilty. It's, it's obvious. Uh, and then they, so they drag her before Jesus and then they set their trap in, in verse 4. They say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, this is a classic gotcha question, right? Uh, they're not really interested in God's law. They're not really interested uh, in justice, in righteousness. Um, otherwise... They would have had the man there too. Last time I checked, adultery is something that involves two people. Um, they're just using this woman as bait to get at Jesus. Uh, if Jesus contradicts the law of Moses, his credibility is undermined, but if he supports what they say, uh, he's most likely to get in trouble with the Roman authorities for being a bit of a rabble-rouser and troublemaker and taking the law into his own hands and... So it's this gotcha question. They're, these guys aren't really interested in um, pleasing God. They're just trying to get at Jesus. And uh, look at Jesus' response. 
He often does this. Um, he, he does, you see this wonderful thing about Jesus, he doesn't buy into people's traps that they try and set for him. He doesn't, he doesn't buy into that. He just, he doesn't even answer them. Uh, he just bends down and starts to write in the dust. Um, we have no idea what he was writing. Uh, writing in the dust was what people would, uh, teachers would do often, like uh, in, in ancient times they didn't have chalkboards or whiteboards or smartboards, whatever it is. Uh, so they'd just bend down and write on the dust. There's all sorts of theories about what Jesus was writing. But one, one thing it certainly did do, his Jesus bending down, writing on the ground, what it did do is it communicated to these guys uh, who came to him, it communicated to them that he wasn't interested in playing their games. Uh, he, he, was, he was going to ignore them, actually, and you see, they, gonna, they get more and more frustrated and you see, they, they, they keep on questioning him. Uh, they keep on questioning, they don't give up. Uh, and so, after a little while, he stands up in verse 7 and he gives this really brilliant reply. He looks at them and says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to ignoring them, writing on the ground. And at, at that point, you can always feel the silence in the air, right? When Jesus says that. Jesus' words sink in. Here are these men who, in their hypocrisy and pride, are using this woman as bait. Uh, these men who presumably have forgotten, like I said, the man she was caught with, Jesus' reply redirects everything to their hearts. He puts the focus on their hearts. How many of them had committed adultery but just had escaped being caught? How many had harboured angry, proud, lustful, hateful thoughts? And then you have this moment of silence and one by one... <laughs> They peel off, starting with the oldest first, until the only person left with the woman is the one person there who is without sin. Jesus is the one person who actually has the right to condemn her without any hypocrisy on his part. He hasn't put a face over his sin. He doesn't have any. But instead, he says in verse 10, he straightens up again and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks at Jesus, who knows what she's thinking. <laughs> no one, sir, she says. And then Jesus says these wonderful words, Then neither do I condemn you. Like we said, the Jewish leaders, they weren't really concerned for God's holiness. They just hated Jesus and they'd use any means they could to bring him down. They were trying to use God's word against Jesus as a trap for him. Uh, but if we've read John's Gospel up till now, you'll, you'll, know, you'll know the truth about Jesus. Right back in chapter 1, John writes that he is the word made flesh 
God's ultimate revealing of himself, the eternal son from the father. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, it's not on the screen, but you can flick back if you want. John writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And isn't that just what you see here? Jesus is full of grace. He doesn't buy into the hypocritical judgment, judgmentalism of the Jewish leaders. But he's also full of truth. I stopped reading a bit early. Maybe you picked that up when I was reading through it just then. He doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you, does he? Jesus doesn't just say that. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus never disagrees that this woman is a sinner. She has offended against God's law, and under that law she is deserving of death. Jesus doesn't argue against that. What he argues against, what he fights against, is the leader's hypocritical pride in thinking that they were in any different circumstance than she was. He doesn't tell the woman that it's all right, you're innocent, you're wrongly accused, just get on with life. She's guilty, everyone knows it, she knows it, Jesus knows it. But he does say, I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. What you see here is just exactly the same kind of dynamic that we reflected on last week in Psalm 116. Remember that great psalm of thanksgiving where the person writing this psalm was overwhelmed by God's kindness to them and that totally transformed their life. Um, it, It changed everything about them so that they couldn't go on the same way. It's exactly the same here. God's salvation, his mercy and grace lead to a a transformed life. Uh, Not a changed life in order to earn his favour, but having already received his grace and favour. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. And friends, in the full picture of the gospel, the, the, the way that Jesus can say this in the fullness of what he came to do, the way that he can say this to this woman and to you, <clears throat> the way that Jesus can say this, he can, he can look at this woman in the eye and say, I do not condemn you. The way that Jesus can say this is because he takes her condemnation on himself. He takes your condemnation on himself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has already been condemned in your place on the cross. And just like Jesus said to this woman, I don't condemn you, go now and leave your life of sin, uh, that should shape everything for us. There's so much to reflect on. I just wanted to pull out a couple of thoughts in terms of the, the, the great transforming impact that this reality can have on our lives. Uh, it can bring us freedom from a kind, the kind of soul-destroying 
hypocrisy that can creep into us. It's so easy to do, isn't it? But it eats away at us. Uh, especially in the church, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus brings freedom from that. We are saved by grace and we live as God's people together by grace. I wanted to share this quote <clears throat> that kind of, I think, quite um, strikingly illustrates this. Uh, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Christianity can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and keeping the unruly city, inner city at bay. This, I realise, goes flat, contrary uh, to the present it's a bit wordy, sorry. The present predominant image of it as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves, far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. There are Christians like that. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cosy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other. I said it's a little bit wordy, but that's a, that's a, that's a um, striking kind of image, isn't it? Uh, church is not the gathering of the good people, but the league of the guilty who recognise in each other those who are brought into God's family only by his pure grace, not because of any goodness in ourselves. Uh, this realisation that not only was this woman condemned, but everyone standing around her was also condemned under God's law, that was the kind of transforming moment. Which, you know, the, the moment that kind of broke these leaders and sent them on their way. The gospel of grace can free us from that kind of hypocrisy, friends. And we need to find ways of encouraging that among each other as we gather in home groups, as we talk to each other and we just spend time with each, in each other's homes with each other, of relating to each other on that same basis of God's grace to us. But it should never lead us, this is my second sort of reflection coming out of this passage, that it should never lead us to be casual about sin. Uh, being forgiven by Jesus leads to repentance uh, as an ongoing and lifelong mode of your existence. We are a league of the guilty, but by God's grace and at the cost of Jesus' own blood, we are forgiven. Our guilt is wiped away because of Jesus. And he calls us to live in thankful response, to go and not take our sin casually. That's what put him on the cross. But to go and leave our life of sin in thankful response to his grace to us. It may be that Jesus' command here cuts you in a particular way today. It presses home a buried sin, 
a respectable sin that you mask over. It may be that today is for you a spur from Jesus to continue to pursue holiness, not only to rejoice in his grace, but to love his truth. Uh, It may be, friends, for you that today, as well alongside all of those things, you see, even for the first time, the reality of the answer to Jesus' question, which of you is without sin? And maybe that comes home to you in a very real way today. If that's you, because of Jesus, he will, because of his death on the cross, he says to you, I do not condemn you. There is no condemnation through trusting in him, putting your faith in him. And now go joyfully, thankfully, leave your life of sin and follow him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for um, your word to us. We thank you for this uh, story of Jesus. We, uh, we thank you for the chance to reflect a little bit about some more technical, I guess, things about the Bible. Um, but Father, thank you for the, uh, for the way in which exploring those things opens up to us the reality of just what a precious gift we have in the scriptures and how you have worked through centuries to preserve this book in such a miraculous way for us. We thank you for this story. Um, We thank you for the truths that it shows us that we find throughout the whole Bible of your grace, of your mercy and forgiveness, of your holiness, of your transforming power in our lives. We pray for each of us that we will hear both of those two wonderful words from Jesus that He does not condemn us, but also that he calls us into a life of radical holiness as we leave our life of sin and live for his glory. Please show us and teach us what that looks like for each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.